Oh, have you got the girls behind it as well? Anybody? The girls behind it. Okay, so we will turn that off for a minute. That better? Okay, so that should give us just uh, just just that. So uh, thanks for dying in. We're going to carry on with this um, study in these uh, letters to the, the churches in what is now Turkey, um, what you would know as the, the letters in the, uh, the churches to Revelation. So last week, Ray took us through uh, the letters to the church in Ephesus, and we uh, it was made clear to us through the letter and all through through what Ray said that the, the warning was there, uh, that the people within the church had lost their first love. Uh, and they had become more than losing their first love. They had become mechanical or uh, involuntary in their work for Christ or in their relationship with Christ. So the, 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 week, the letter we're going to look at this week is written to a church in Smyrna. Now, ancient Smyrna sits uh, within what is now the, the, the modern city limits of Izmir on the east coast of Turkey. Yet Smyrna, as our time of writing, is a, a wealthy uh, and powerful city, uh, almost on a par with Ephesus and Pergamon. So there's a famous street uh, in the city of Izmir, as it is now, uh, and as it was then, the Golden Street. It was a road that began at the Temple of Zeus and finished at the Temple of Cybele. Uh, and along its length, you would, could find a temple to almost all of the major Roman gods. What I find interesting, particularly about that picture, is as we look at this letter to the church in Smyrna, what do we see there in the dominating the backgrounds of that picture? Uh, for those of you that can see it, we see there the one of the temples of Islam. And yet here we find this, um, this peculiar street where you could find, as I said, a, a, a temple to almost any Roman god. And yet what history tells us is that at this time this letter was written, the city was known throughout the region for its deep-rooted idolatry, not in worship to a particular Roman god, but rather to the emperor himself. So we have this city of mixed-up, toxic-turvy ideologies. And within that city exists a church made up of Jews who have been baptized and, and, uh, and converted to what would have been known as the Christian way. So already this church is being formed amongst a backdrop of confusion. It's been formed amongst a backdrop of anything goes. So as we look at this letter and draw from it uh, some of the applications, I want to encourage us and also to warn us uh, here at Great Parks, as we are at Great Parks Chapel. So I've entitled uh, tonight's uh, thoughts around this, Don't Be Surprised. Don't be surprised. You see, it's a statement that you could apply it to many of the, 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 the events that happen within these verses. So we're only actually going to read three verses together, and they are coming up on screen uh, now, or as ever, I follow, encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. And it reads like this, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, or, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So just a few verses to consider tonight, but there is, uh, as ever with scripture, an awful lot in there. So this letter then is written to the leader of the church in Smyrna. And we're immediately introduced to the author. You see, Jesus himself describes himself as the first and the last. You see, he puts himself in this right particular place. The phrase first and last is a, is a phrase that runs through the entire book of Revelation. Through the book, in the description of the first and the last, Jesus is claiming absolute deity. He is claiming that he existed before creation. And as the last, he is, compl- he is claiming he will remain after creation has ceased. So right at the beginning, we get Jesus in his proper place. You see, it's the authority by which this and the other six letters are written. Jesus is saying, because of who I am, you need to take note of what is said in this letter. Because of who I am, you need to sit up and take notice of the warning that I'm about to give you. You need to sit up and take notice of the the encouragement that you're about to receive. He's also stating that because of who he is, when trouble comes to the church in Smyrna, they can take refuge in him. You see, we should tap into that encouragement that when trouble or persecution comes to us as individuals or as a church, we know that we can take refuge in Christ. Now, I've not come to bring you something new tonight in that statement. That isn't new. There are those of you that have been playing this uh, this uh, life as a Christian an awful lot longer than I have and I've heard it many many times that we can take refuge in Christ but it's there to encourage as there are those of us that face isolation as there are those of us that face uncertainty as there are those of us who of which we don't know what's going to happen with our businesses our jobs our families our schooling our education whatever it might be we realize that we can take refuge in Christ You see, when everything else around us seems to be falling apart, when we have big decisions to make, when we do not know what the future holds, we can trust Christ for everything. You see, but Christ also points out his humanity. The one who died and came back to life. You see, he was stating that as a man, he could give himself over to death. And that was why he had to be a man. That was why he had to play the part he did within the Trinity, that he had to become a man. God cannot die. But God as a man could die, could face judgment. The man who said, I have power to lay down my life and power to take it again. You see, the death he would die would be real. It would be the subject of crucifixion. And as a human, he would be subject to the brutality of it all. And yet we remember that this is all part of God's eternal plan. 
Yet as we get into verse 8, we realise that he said and came back to life. You see, that, those, that one little phrase there speaks of triumph. It speaks of triumph over death that came from the resurrection. It speaks of Christ's triumph over death itself. So what I really want to do from this letter is this, and all the letters that we're going to read together, is put ourselves in the position of a Christian in Smyrna. Put ourselves in the position of a Christian in Laodicea. Put ourselves in the position of a Christian in Ephesus. And then all of a sudden these verses take on different meanings. Because when we start to apply the warnings and encouragements that they give us to those churches, and we take all of a sudden these seven letters and apply them to our own, they take on a very different meaning. And all of a sudden it makes things a bit uncomfortable. And we fidget around on our seats because actually we realise that Christ is talking to us. So put yourself then in that position of a Christian in Smyrna. When the persecution comes, and as we see, as we go through verse by verse, it certainly will come. If death itself is the end of your persecution, you can cling on to the fact that Christ has defeated death itself as a human. And so you can defeat death as a human. You see, that's the encouragement from this first of our few verses tonight. In verse 9, when we get a bit of a reality of just how much Jesus knows about us. See, Ray mentioned this last week. He said not only does he know about us as individuals, he knows about our churches. You see, Jesus knew the church's tribulation. You see, Jesus knew the church's poverty. And Jesus knew the slander that those churches would face. That's all from verse 9. You see, the tribulation that they faced, or the opposition that they faced, was to what they were trying to achieve as a church. They were a group of mainly Jews who had converted to Christianity. As I said, they'd been baptised. And what is interesting is they find opposition. They find economic opposition. They find political opposition. They find religious opposition. You see, in all these things, all these uh, oppositions that they came up, uh, came up against, sparks and speaks of their tribulation. So I recently attended a, a, a prayer meeting for the work uh, in Moldova. And Moldova is currently suffering the results of one of the worst uh, droughts and harvests uh, they have ever had. Food is remarkably scarce. I was told of a story of a young couple who are currently surviving by uh, eating the nuts and burning the shells of those nuts to keep themselves warm. Now, I don't say that to shock you. Please don't think that. But actually, I say because this is what's happening in our world as we speak. So the pastors and the evangelists that are involved in the program that, that I've been privileged enough to support, well, they're providing food and aid packages to these villages. And they're using that aid giving uh, to share the gospel with all those people who receive the aid. And they are seeing salvation. So let's not get too cast down or despondent about it. Yet what is interesting about this is that this has caused absolute ruptures in the Orthodox Church within that country, who have said, and I quote, it must be stopped immediately. 
These are people who call themselves Christians, who have seen this work, who have seen this idea of what it means to be a Christian, to support those who are poor and to support the widows. And here we have a group of people who are bent on stopping this work. Remember I said there was nothing new? You see, it was this sort of pressure the church in Smyrna was under. Don't be surprised if it comes our way as a church, if we attempt things for God. Don't be surprised if we come under pressure from the principalities and powers that Paul talks of, if we try things as for God as an individual. So as we go through that verse, then we come to the word poverty. Now you might have noticed that I said earlier on that this town, this town of Smyrna, was wealthy and, prosper and prosperous. Well, that wealth and prosperity, it was widely believed, did not make it to the people within the church at Smyrna. Economic persecution was not a new thing for God's people. It seemed throughout the Old Testament. History would show us that the Romans had, had a very tight-knit society when it came to business and commerce. There would have been allegiances in, that needed to be sworn to the Roman emperors in order to have your business prosper. And as Christians in this church, they were not prepared to do that. And so they suffered poverty, isolation, and even homelessness because of it. Yet don't be surprised then if economic prosecution could well come our way. It may not lead to destitution or homelessness, but it could well see us being passed over for jobs or something similar. You see, it affected the church then and it affects the church now. While Jesus speaks about poverty of those in the church, he also talks about their wealth. To be clear, there's no contradiction in scripture here. The wealth that Jesus is talking about is spiritual wealth. You see, that is something that no enemy could touch. And it's something that Christ acknowledges them for. For Christ to say that you are rich, he is talking about them being rich spiritually. So as I said then, put ourselves in as the people to whom the letter is written. Could Jesus say as we sit here tonight, though you are poor, you are rich? Could Jesus write to the church in Great Parks and would he be able to acknowledge or highlight our spiritual wealth? That's a huge challenge. That is a huge challenge to know that there were people in this church who stuck so closely to God, no matter what they faced, that Christ recognized them for it. That Christ makes mention of the wealth of their spirituality. You see, lastly then, for verse 9, there is a recognition almost of what Matthew calls wolves in sheep's clothing. They are, are Jews who, who aren't real Jews. They were people who cavorted with pagans in, in the persecution of the church. They were people who took pleasure in causing misery to God's people. You see, these people are there in today's society. Don't be surprised. If when you attempt something for God, there are those people who will look to persecute you. So as we come then to verse 10 
and 11. You will notice if you read the, the tact switches. Uh, the phrases we discussed the, uh, the other week, do not be afraid, uh, is one of the most re reoccurring phrases in scripture. Kev mentioned it at Great Parks the other Sunday morning. He asked, what is the most uh, common phrase in scripture? Do not be afraid or do not fear. And for you, Kev, I didn't bother to research how many were occurrences of it in scripture as well, but let's call it 365 and a quarter. And so here we find this phrase, do not be afraid. Translated literally, it means stop being afraid. You see, the threat of persecution for the church was, was very real and something that many of them were already experiencing. And with that persecution, undoubtedly came fear. You see, that is understandable and entirely human. And if we are honest with ourselves this evening, we would behave in exactly the same manner. There are those of us currently who are afraid, who are unsure as to what the future will hold. There are unsure as to what this virus will hold for us. There are those of us who are isolating our homes and have been there since March or there or thereabouts. We are afraid. It's a very human thing to do. There are those of us who are not afraid, who just, it's part of life and I trust God for it. And, you know, please, I'm not knocking those of you that are by any stretch of the imagination. But the simple fact of the matter is this, the word of God itself says, stop being afraid. You see, what Christ offers the church that is facing persecution is a hope and a glimpse. He is offering hope in persecution. You see, because what Christ does in verse 10 is show us the reason behind that persecution. And in that, I suggest he does it in four ways. The first is this. He offers insight as to who is behind it. He says the devil is about to. He reveals the satanic attack is behind the people's imprisonment. He tells them the length of their imprisonment. Now, there are many arguments about the literal meaning of these 10 days is it's a debatable subject but in all honesty for this point it doesn't matter what it shows to us is this the tribulation has a finality to it it shows that god remains in control by allowing these things to happen for a period of time and what is interesting is that historically in the ancient world imprisonment was not for correction or for punishment Imprisonment was what a person who was waiting trial and execution would endure. And yet we're told that the, the, those people who would be imprisoned for their faith would be there for 10 days. We're not told what happened after them. But we know that there is a finality to that imprisonment. What the time may be is up for debate. Yet we can take it away from this, that whatever we face, has a finality. But God says, I am in control. Look what he did with Job. 
Job was a man who had it all. And yet God was so sure that Job would trust him that he allowed Satan and his forces to take everything of him. How many times do we read the words in that book, curse God and die? But Job says, no. There was a finality to Job's tribulation. Look at Daniel. Daniel in there in King's College, Babylon. He was emotionally battered. He was academically battered into being subject to these ideologies and these rulers that said, no, God is not real. You must worship the king. And Daniel said, no. He was there and he made his stand for God. There was a finality to his tribulation. The church in Smyrna, there is a finality to the tribulation. The church in Great Parks, there is a finality to our tribulation, whatever that might be, be it as a church or be it as an individual. It is only for a period of time. Yet what we realize is this, that we will be tested. What this imprisonment meant for the Smyrna Christians is this, that there will be a time of testing that God has allowed. We read in, in other New Testament letters that testing was sent by God for the purpose of helping us to be what? More like his son. Through this time of suffering, of persecution and trial, this was going to reveal to the true riches of the church in Smyrna. Incidentally, this revealing would not only be to the people around them, but as often as the case, to themselves. Great pressure and testing reveals substances, reveal a substance, true value and worth. You don't get pressed stones and metals without intense pressure and testing. Mate, forgive me for this, this next part. I don't often look to comic book heroes for inspirational quotes. But as I was writing this, this uh, quote from the Superman film came to mind. The only way to know how strong, how strong you, you are, some apologies for the mistake, is to keep testing your limits. Now that sounds more like some advert for an awful gym, to be honest with you, but the point is well made. We don't know what we are capable of until we are put under pressure. We don't know what we can achieve for God until God puts us under pressure. You see, the church in Smyrna would be tested. And a result of that testing would be spiritual witness, richness within that church. So us as individuals, are we being tested to prove our spiritual as I see a handful of you on camera this evening, I'm looking at people that are listening to my voice but thinking about other things. I don't know what those other things are. It could be, when's he going to shut up because I want a cup of tea? But it could be whatever life is throwing at you at the minute. The testing, is it going to prove your spiritual richness? You see, fourthly, he says, be faithful and you will receive your reward. He said, this is a repeat of what he said to the church in Ephesus. What is interesting 
to note about what Christ says, or rather what Christ doesn't say about the church is this. There is no rebuke or correction within the letters of the church this morning. When you read the letters to the Galatians, when you read the, the letters to the Colossians, whether you read the, the Philippians, the churches, the Thessalonica, whatever it might be, there are times in there when Paul corrects them for what they have not done or what they have done. When you read this letter to the church in Smyrna, there is no rebuke or correction. This was a church that was faithful. This was a church from what we tell would go through tribulation and testing. You see, what is interesting is that, as I said, there is no correction. There is no rebuke. But what Christ is insinuating here when he talks about your reward is this. He's talking about a crown. You see, the crown had cultural importance for the people. The city itself on the Golden Street was this crown of beautiful buildings. Worshippers of pagan gods wore crowns. In that culture, the winning athletes wore, and good citizens wore crowns. It was a symbol. It was a picture. It was something that they could grasp and understand. The crown, in this instance, would be recognisable by God. A crown that it was, was the reward for being faithful. The crowns that were important within the civilizations faded. The temples no longer stand. The crowns of worshippers and pagan gods have long since been lost. And the crowns of leaves worn by the athletes have long since withered and died. But the crowns of life given to those who are faithful, faithful unto death, will never spoil or fade, and are enjoyed by those who have long gone to glory. The crown, the reward for being faithful. You see, all these things point, as I said earlier on, put ourselves in this Smyrna church. Don't be surprised if testing comes to the church at Great Parks. The question is, when the test comes, are we going to face it head on? Will we as individuals, will we as a church be faithful and receive the crown of life? So finally, then we come to verse 11. And what we are presented with here is this, a well-used phrase by Christ. He who has ears, let him hear. Let us take hold of what this letter says. Let us take hold of what this letter says as we go into this week. Some of us are isolated. Some of us are struggling with whatever the world is going through at the minute. There are those who are anxious, afraid, and those who are even facing persecution. The letters, this letter that we're looking at tonight, just like it does to the other churches, speaks clearly as a challenge to us as it does to the church in Smyrna. We may face levels of persecution that in the future may shape the very foundations of our faith. There are many mentions in relation to the church in Smyrna of a man called Polycarp. So he was martyred 
for his faith. Yet he stood as an example of courage in the face of persecution. Martyrdom, as we speak tonight, is rife across the globe. And Christians are regularly punished or killed for their faith. We are called to be strong and courageous, even in the face of adversity. So as we go into this week, with all that possibility of persecution behind us, of all these ideas of the pressure that the church is under today, I want to leave you with this encouragement. The second part of verse 11 talks about the one who conquers. You see, that's us. We are the one who conquers. How do we conquer? Because we conquer through what Christ has done on the cross. That's us. We who live in the good of what Christ has achieved for us. And I leave you with what Paul said in Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will not, how will he not also, uh, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also there interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, incredible letter tonight. We realize that it was written to a church under pressure. It was written to Christians who were under pressure. It was written to Christians who existed in a world of confused ideologies, of confused religion, of paganism. And yet, Lord, we realize that the world hasn't changed. And Lord, your message hasn't changed. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be encouraged. Strengthen us, we pray, Lord, as we go into this week, whatever it may face. Lord, we thank you that nothing can snatch us from your hands. And that, Father, there is nothing that the world can do that can break our relationship with you. So, Father, we come before you. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for the warnings and the encouragements that are within it. And Lord, bless us as we go into this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.